It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Alpha. And I'm Armando. And in this fourth and final special episode of the New Statesman podcast, we'll be joined by the former Conservative MP turned Change UK founding member Anna Soubry and journalist and broadcaster Paul Mason to discuss consensus in British politics. Now, Armando, why do you think it's important to talk about this right now? Well, I think this is, I mean, this is the summation of all the special podcasts we've been doing, because the thing that has worried me really over the last five or six years is, yes, more and more people have become, I think, vocal about their political beliefs and opinions. A lot of people have become committed, but it's very much more to single campaign issues Mm -hmm. within parties. Things have got more fragmented. I think not just the power of the prime minister, but the power of any party leader has become so dominant that it becomes a case of you're either with me or you're against me. There's nothing in between. And in all these pockets of opinions, so I just worry that we're losing that habit of being able to debate, of being able to connect with people who do have opinions different from us and, and trying to establish whether there is anything that we have in common. Are you worried about free speech as an issue in particular? Well, that's behind it. You know, I think it's right that people are passionate about their beliefs, that want to defend them. What worries me is that we've lost that sense of of being able to tolerate hearing something that we disagree with and coming up with an argument that we can engage with that person about it. And it does worry me that we lose that art of the art of debate, really, if all we can do is just stand by our beliefs and not want to listen to anyone who has even a partial disagreement with us. And it seems like Brexit and the past few years have massively exacerbated well, I think this as that, well. And that's, you know, not just a tectonic change in politics, but it's it's added to that whole debate about identity. You know, whether you're a Remainer or a Brexiteer has is, 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 become one of these dominant categories now that seem to turn us into these tribal groups. I think it's added fuel to, you know, has given lots of politicians extra weapons to play with in terms of culture wars and being able to dog whistle attitudes or just being able to use key phrases and words like get Brexit done 
or for the many, not the few, things like that, rather than feel pressure to actually outline what they do believe in and what their principles are and and where they're open to compromise. Mm, And I think we're really lucky. We've assembled a great panel to discuss this today. Two people who really lived through the heart of those divisions. We'll introduce you both formally. So Anna Subri, we're really delighted to have you with us. Anna was the MP for Broxtow until 2019. She was elected a Conservative, but left the party to help found and eventually lead the breakaway party Change UK. She has become an outspoken critic of the government's Brexit policy. And also joining us is Paul Mason, who's a journalist and broadcaster. He was Newsnight's economics editor before taking on the same role at Channel 4 News, and then left Channel 4 in 2016 to spend more time campaigning on the left in British politics. Uh, Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Well, it's great to have you both with us. Can I start with you, Anna, having been in Parliament at the heart of these divisions? I'm wondering if we could just start by asking you if you agree with Armando that things have become particularly toxic and find it very difficult to agree, and also why you think that our political climate has become quite so difficult and it's so hard to reach polite consensus... And you are allowed to disagree. Yeah. According to my own rules, you are allowed to disagree with me. I feel quite, in a way, sad that I am now going to be defined by Brexit. That really hacks me off. It hacks me off that I'm seen on the extreme of the Brexit debate. And I'll just tell you one quick anecdote. I was asked to do a pilot for a programme, TV programme, on the basis that you know people either really liked me or absolutely loathed me. And, I, and, I, and I, it really made me sort of sit up and think about who and what I am. It says a lot about what's happened in politics, because someone like me, I am the epitome of that one nation, middle of the road, Ken Clark, get on with anybody, Tory. You know, I am never, have never been uh, on the extremes of politics. But because of Brexit, and that's where you're, you're right, that it, it has for some people, put you into one of two camps, but not everybody. It's really important to understand that, you know, I think for the majority of people, certainly outside of London, they kind of just get on with the rest of their lives and they are not defined by Brexit. But Brexit, you know, was this sort of huge thing that happened, and unexpectedly, of course. And in the drive to somehow deliver this undeliverable thing, it meant that the, these powers of, I think, of, of really nastiness that had driven the whole of that Leave campaign, it's like now they were from under the stone, they were out, it was their day, and they were going to make damn sure that they got what they wanted. And in doing that, they adopted that Trumpian playbook. They saw the rise of Trump as being the way forward, and that's how you win elections. And if you just if you were able to delve down and look at how the Conservatives won in the May elections in Nottinghamshire, they did it using a style of language and issues that, frankly, I would have expected from the old BNP. It, it was that bad, and it was that bad. And what really upsets me, as somebody who lived in Nottinghamshire for the vast majority of my life, is the one. Until the forces of sanity and reasonableness and moderation and all the rest of it get their act together, 
we are lumbered with this nastiness. Well, I mean, getting acted together is is the, is the question, really, Paul. I mean, you've been on a little bit of a journey as well in terms of your expressions of devotion to the party leadership within the <laughs> Labour, and, and then and then kind of you know adjusting to the reality of the fact that you know there has to be more than just a big heave to get labor into power yeah i mean look what i think we're talking about is not just something that's the products of brexit i think we're talking about the emergence of a faction within political elites all over the world that's rejected globalization it quite likes the free market but it just wants to do it on a national basis making whether it's hungary or britain or the united states great again and, pre- and they're prepared to create a new social coalition. That's what Anna's describing there in Nottinghamshire. I know it from my own hometown uh, in Lee, which went Tory. It was liberal in the 19th century. It was never conservative. What that new social coalition wants is xenophobic, it's nationalist. And what is the most interesting thing is, I mean, I am a Marxist. I'm not a cultural Marxist. I'm an actual Marxist. I'm used to being otherized. But what is amazing now is to see liberalism otherized in the same way. That's what Trumpism, that's what Leavism, that's what Viktor Orban is doing in, in, in Hungary. You know, I occasionally write for The Spectator. I get pilloried for doing it just because I want to, to maintain wherever I can that old infrastructure that we are all part of a democracy. We're part of a nation. We want its national security to be to be maintained. But there's a, there are no limits. Where I think they are being driven from, Anna refers to the Conservative campaign in Nottinghamshire. I've been very engaged in the debate over the England Euro 2020 football campaign, where you've seen Conservative politicians, again, effectively adopt the tropes and the language of the far right over the team taking the knee. And I think what we're just going to have is a robust argument, but not an argument ad hominem. A large parts of the left, you know, where I come from, are, are literally sort of hiding in a, in, a, in a cave. They don't want to engage with the unfortunate sort of mixture of conservatism and sort of far-right ideology that is propagated in civil society. Do you think there's, there's and this is a question for both of you really, are the main parties now at the stage where they've gone beyond a tipping point of really relying on their core base and have abandoned that idea of trying to reach out to those who wouldn't normally vote for them? No, not at all. Not the Tory party. Labour, look, there's there's two really distinct things here, and, we, and we've got to be, in my opinion, really clear. So there's what's happening in the Tory party, and then there's what's happened in the Labour party. And I think that's where Paul and I might start to really heavily fall out, because the Labour party went off to the left with the election of Corbyn and became absolutely unelectable, as it was in 17, and then most importantly in 2019, handing this huge majority to Boris Johnson. So there are two distinct things here that have been going on in both parties. But what's been where I think I might agree with Paul is the I get really frustrated and angry about people who will not stand up. Lots of decent people hide away now. They should be making an argument. And one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in is because small L liberals, and if it's, you know, if that includes me, I'll put my hands up to it. But they, they assumed that they were taking people with them. Immigration is a really good example of it. And now, instead of engaging with people and, and making the case and having a rigorous argument, my experience, certainly the Labour Party, is they go, oh, yes, I, really, I understand, I feel your pain. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? Let's have a proper conversation about this. It sounds as though you both are in agreement that, to a large extent, it's the current conservative strategy that is stoking 
very intense, bitter divisions. What do you each think needs to happen in order to counter that quite divisive electoral strategy? I think you were touching on it, Paul, about not hiding away. I think the Conservative Party, it's absorbed a large part of the UKIP and Brexit Party base. It's certainly absorbed a large part of its vote. It is using the language of right-wing populism. So it needs to be defeated. I mean, I, I've got friends who, uh, Anna is an acquaintance, but I have actual friends who are Tories, you know, saying to them, look, we need to engineer a pos- position whereby you can spend a generation out of power. Otherwise, you're going to end up like the, the American Republicans with a willing host of fascism. How do we defeat them? I think, you know, it's pretty obvious Hannah Arendt said, you know, described what we're up against. She said, you know, it's, a, it's an alliance of the elite and the mob. The only time we ever defeat alliance of the elite and the mob is an alliance of the centre and the left. And I'm on the left, and I know that means sacrifices, political sacrifices going to have to be made to, to form that alliance. But switching the focus to Labour, the problem is we are now facing, in the Labour movement, the rapid fragmentation of the social coalition that once that, that came to form Labour. They lost bits of Sheffield, bits of Bristol to the Green Party. Look at what happened in, in Batley in the, in the by-election there. 8,000 votes for what I regard as a, a right-wing populist, George Galloway. Almost all from Labour, I'm told by the, by the activists there. It's a very fragile so- social coalition. And, it, and we need a leadership and a politics that can put just that back together. And it's not an easy coalition, isn't it? Because that does imply, you know, the likes of Labour joining forces with, with you, Anna, and the Lib Dems, as well as the Greens, and possibly some kind of arrangement with the Scottish Nationalists. I'm in favour of all of that. Uh, not, when I say joining, I mean making tactical agreements. I can see Anna's objecting. Our two main parties have always been, and this is what was the argument in favour of the first past the post was that you've got coalitions because both parties were coalitions and, and the old Tory party that I was a member of when it's a student and then when I came back in, in the 2000s it was a coalition it is no longer a coalition it is it is dominated in the way that we have described and led by Boris Johnson and all the ghastliness that we, we can all agree on and what you haven't got is any form of coalition for which includes moderate one nation type Tories like me and with great respect to Paul and, I, and, and he'll correct me and if I'm wrong I apologise but the trouble is is that you have to understand there is a profound difference between the membership of the Labour Party and people who vote Labour and the idea that you are going to form some coalition how the, you see how this coalition is being described it's being described as political parties it's the leadership of those political parties or even the membership of those political parties. But that is not how we are going to defeat these dreadful forces. And that includes the forces of extremism in the left. It only will occur when people come behind something, the moderate, sensible, centrist voice of the majority, I still believe, that is out there in the real world, when they have something that they can believe in uh, and they can support. I think there's a good argument, actually, that Labour is now absolutely defunct because it's going to take Starmer years, just look like it took Kinnock and then it took John Smith and finally Tony Blair to root out the left, the hard left. And that's why I still believe, I don't know what it will be, but we, we can't go on like this. There's a vacuum in politics. There are millions of people 
who feel totally homeless. My take on things at the moment is that while there is, I think I agree with both in that both of you in that there is this yearning within the parties and outside the parties for some kind of consensus, but consensus doesn't necessarily mean neutral in the middle on everything. You know, it's it's actually I, I think people are in favour of some radical c- consensus, but the problem is the party system and the electoral system. I mean, how is something like that going to be achieved under the present system? We you, you can go out in the streets and persuade people. I agree with you about the electoral system. Yeah. I'm shaking my head because the biggest problem is tribalism. And if there's a couple of things that I learned during my time in Parliament, and then as, as I got to know the Labour Party, because I worked with so many people before I left the Tory party, but then subsequently, is that the Labour Party is so tribal. But even the Liberals at a local level are so tribal. And we can sit and Paul, for all his brilliance, can try, and it will take him years to get these people to agree to this, and it's too damn late. It's all broken, and it it needs something new. So my model for this, for trying to address this problem, it it is what happened in France in 1936, the so-called Popular Front. I mean, everybody's heard of the Popular Front because of freedom for tooting. But the original Popular Front, uh, not your generation, obviously, because it was a sitcom in the 70s. But the Popular Front was literally an alliance between the the, the French Radical Party, which were liberals, and the French Socialist Party, which were quite moderate, and the French Communists, who would probably fit into Anna's definition of extreme, to defeat fascism. Now, what's interesting when you... I've been studying it for, for, for the book I've written, is that it was in Indeed, it did indeed take control away from the party leaderships. It was local committees, or often led by teachers who were seen at that time as intellectuals, you know, civil servants, low-level civil servants, not, in other words, trade unionists or left activists. And they formed you know, cultural groups, local groups, and made all, all it did is it delivered a government. It delivered a government that immediately delivered social reform and indeed stopped fascism for four years until the Vichy regime came along. Now, why bring that historical parallel? Because I think it, especially for my part of the political spectrum, the left, the one of the first things you learn is that that was a disaster. That it was a disaster that in any way the left formed a kind of big tactical alliance with liberalism and social democracy. Um, we, we are going to have to do it. But does that mean forming an alliance with, you know, Anna's not just centrist, but one nation well, conservative well, no, voter? Well, if necess- absolutely. You know, in the Spanish Civil War, Churchill's nephew fought and, and spoke on the same platform as communists. I've got no problem with that. But let, let's, let's be clear. There are two political pr- strategies here between me and, and Anna. And they're different because that, that group of people that were forming, you know, the independent group and Change UK and, and, and there was a much bigger group of Labour MPs who would have gone with it, I believe, under other circumstances. I, I was looking at 50 or 60. They want a democratic party, i.e. The, the, like, 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 the, like the US Democrats. As you can hear from Anna, what they, would, what they don't want really in that is any trace of the left, of the far left. Unfortunate fact is you can defeat the miners, you can defeat an entire generation like my dad's generation of left-wing socialist workers, but they don't die and they've got votes, and there are tens of, well, hundreds of thousands of them involved in politics, age 70. And you, you can't form something that's anti-Tory without them feeling having a stake in it. We need a progressive alliance. Its promise needs to be constitutional reform. That's the next stage in, in British politics. If we don't get it, like Anna, I, I agree, we, we're, we're stumped. Okay, Anna. You see the language, an anti-Tory. 
Right, so I am somebody who's done something which I don't think anybody else has done that's involved in this conversation. I have stood in a general election in a seat that is marginal. So I had to win that seat from Labour. And if Labour is going to win the next election, it has to win back seats like that. You don't win by insulting the very people who you are saying, I know how you voted last time, but this time I want you to vote for the other lot. And, it, and I think it's symbolic of the complete failure of the left to understand that you don't insult, as I say, those very people that you want to win over. It's a real mistake we make that, people, that we think that people are obsessed with politics and that they uh, identify themselves in some way politically. Most people watch politics out of the corner of their eye and they only address it when an election of some description comes up and people are out wanting their vote. And broadly, they, they vote for people who will, one, be competent and secondly, broadly share their values. That's how it happens. You're listening to a special bonus episode of the New Statesman podcast with Armando Iannucci. When we come back, we'll talk about what a political alliance of the centre and left might look like and what can Paul and Anna agree about. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Anna, you were saying that you would like to see something new. What would that look like? We've kind of heard from Paul what that could plausibly be. And you're not on the same page with him. You still describe yourself as a one nation Tory. Would you ultimately like to see a bigger tent of conservatism? The Tory party is not going to change. Right? It's in the grip of uh, Paul's absolutely right. It's turned into the Brexit Leave Party and God knows what else. It, it'll basically sell its own soul, or its own granny for a vote. Deeply unpleasant, absolutely populist. All the sensible people have either left or have effectively been muted. And so that, that is not the vehicle, if you like. That's not the way forward. The Lib Dems, God, if I thought the Lib Dems were the answer, I would have left the Conservative Party and joined the Lib Dems. They are not the answer. I always thought the tragedy when I was in Parliament was that I'd often find myself in the Labour lobby, not just on Brexit, but other things. And I'd, I'd talk to certain people and say, this is ridiculous. Why aren't we in the same party? Do either of you think there might be a need for some Faustian pact between both sides to at least agree to disagree for two or three years, if only to get electoral reform and proportional representation? No, they won't do it. Well, I, I'm, it's not a Faustian pact. I think, let's talk about, we haven't mentioned Scotland. You know, mm. Labour, as Anna says, is is a, is 
intrinsically tribal on Scotland. It's going to have to overcome that. Scotland's gone, you know, I think from, from uh, I think it's leaving the UK within a decade. The terms on which it leaves are matter to Scottish people because they will leave what, with the Bank of England in control of their economy. Who controls the Westminster government is an important question, even if you are a very ardent Scottish nationalist. I think that that's the basis of a conversation we need to be having with them. The point is, like what happened in, there was various local county council elections in, in May, you know, secret spreadsheets were created between the Lib Dem, Green and, and Labour activists, unbeknown to Labour HQ, and and resources were diverted to certain wards, etc. I mean, that, that's a start. All we can do is lay out what the goal is, which which would be, I think, a progressive coalition government that delivered PR and that delivered uh, not just that, defence of the rule of law. The rule of law is crumbling in this country. You know, the whole Dominic Cummings revelations, the, his testimony. You know, he's, when Tom, Dominic Cummings says, I want a dictatorship that pushes the legality to the limit, that's not, he's not a, a fool. He's just saying what the American far right think. So we need to defend democracy against that. I will do it alongside Anna Subri or indeed any liberal Tory or however they self-described. That's then got to deliver something because otherwise you're in the position Macron's in. Macron, the kind of blood is draining from Macron's cheeks right now because he's got. there's no content apart from Islamophobia uh, and attacks on working class people. So th th this is the problem. When you create something brand new with no roots, then you've got to... You've got to deliver something. All circumstances are so so huge that that people are almost by necessity forced together. I'm thinking of the example in Israel where you've got you know yeah. Arabist and very ultra orthodox Jewish parties together because they just wanted rid of Netanyahu. And I do wonder whether we've had not just Brexit, which was already the you know the biggest shakeup of the UK since the Second World War, followed by the pandemic. And then something as major as climate change, right? You know, if, if we were to argue under those circumstances, you two have to form a national government. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what would you agree on? Look, I'm sure there are things we would agree on. Look, I'm somebody who, when I was a student, was a member of the anti-Nazi League as a Tory and, and went on demonstrations against the, the old National Front in Birmingham. I was a, a, a huge activist in defence of the 1967 Abortion Act. So you can always find issues upon which there's cross-party support. And that's obviously to the credit. I mean, I, I have to say, ironically, I actually could work better with, with the old trots in those days than nowadays, because they, they've become so, they became so unpleasant and, and so tribal. You'll always find the single issue. The thing that then marks you out and will divide you, and that will then lead to the fall of the government, is when you determine what your budget's going to be, what your economic position is. Because you can't do anything unless you've got the money there and you've agreed what your economic strategy is going to be. And at that point, Paul's thing completely falls apart. I think there are very pr propitious circumstances right now where that might be solvable. First of all, the, the, the fact is, you know, Labour promised to, to, to borrow £250 billion at the last election uh, over five years. The Tories have just borrowed £330 in a year. To, and printed most of it via the Bank of England. We've got a big problem, climate change. I think the challenge for those of us who want to find common ground, and I do, is to root the answers in the economics of, of combating climate change. And if we, if we use climate change, as it were, as, as the substitute for Keynesianism, mm -hmm. around which the left and liberalism came in the 30s, then, the, then the, a Green New Deal, or whatever you want to call it, could be combined with a, a new fiscally expansionary orthodoxy, that is you borrow money, print it and spend it to save the world, 
I know I could more than with with you, Anna. I think there are other conservatives who could you could know have that discussion with. Anna, would that appeal to you? Paul is absolutely right in his analysis about government spending, and then rightly going and making the comparison with what Labour had promised under Jeremy Corbyn. However, what's happening in the Conservative Party now is that you see the likes of Ken Clark. And you'll see Philip Hammond, in other words, the more sensible, the old one nation, obviously, Ken being the prime example of that, who are going, oh, hang on a moment. How are you going to pay for this, Boris Johnson? And there is a division because Johnson, he doesn't give a monkey's. You know, it's not his own personal life where he's useless with finances. And, and I know where I sit in it, as you might imagine. I'm, I'm with Ken Clark, who says, we can't just borrow all this money without sensibly paying it back. I think the next thing is going to be inflation, which is going to rock it. I'm I'm not getting a, a whole amount of of consensus on this one, but I'm wondering well, whether we going for twenty minutes. I mean, you know, a Good Friday agreement took what three four years. <laughs> um, do you think that this is likely to get better, or is it going to get worse? Do you? But do both of you think that this is a the permanent situation or the semi permanent situation of British politics? A time of deep divisions. Certainly, the, it, it's a time of deep division. One thing I am worried about is what happens if if my side win? I mean, people were scared enough of Corbyn. I saw it on the doorstep, you know, in 2019, not so much 2017. They had bought the idea that he was an anti-Semite and a, and a threat to national security and a lot of this. People in Longbridge, you know, the old Labour stronghold. Now, what I worry about is suppose, we, suppose it all happens. Suppose you end up with, you know, 2019-style Keir Starmer as Prime Minister, Nicola Sturgeon in the government the Greens in the government, and etc. There's a section of British population that would see that as a revolutionary provisional government, you know, that they believe that it's the Antichrist. Politics is cryogenically frozen by COVID-19. And as it thaws, and we saw, we saw it with the end of the England campaign in 2020, you know, there's mini riots everywhere. There's hatred and division. Yeah, I'm worried about it. And, and all you can do is build resilient institutions and organizations at societal level that can counteract it and that can sort of spread a, a kind of more general sort of anti-toxicity. Anna, what about you? I simply don't know what the answer is. I think we all agree that we are in unprecedented times for a variety of reasons. I agree with Paul about this nasty division that exists in the way that I... I honestly don't think I've seen this before in my life. And I don't know what the answer is. I thought it might be Keir Starmer, but I don't know whether he's going to do what he needs to do, which is to take, as I've described, to take the Labour Party back into regaining that centrist uh, landscape. But something has to come out of it, because there is, as I said before, millions of people who feel politically homeless and in despair at what is happening. And there's a vacuum there. And something, something good, I'm going to be positive, Something good has to fill that vacuum. In all that we've discussed and, and in all that is happening, the one thing that's not happening is that nobody is actually looking at the causes of Brexit and addressing those causes. It's completely lost on everybody. That's a real mistake. What I think we need to do, though, is to focus on what works uh, in politics. What worked for Labour in Batley was, I was there, you know, saw it firsthand, was a kind of radically prosaic uh, politics. Kim will get your potholes fixed. That's what you're talking about there, Anna. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, it, this was a, a place where th there was real attempts to, to stir division and, and Labour overcame it and they did 
by all accounts, according to those I've spoken to who've seen the results, I ward by ward, they did create a new coalition of voters because they lost a big chunk of voters. The specifics of that case are, are the specifics, but the generalities are, actually, I thought when I saw Kim, Kim Ledbetter in action, this is kind of what a Labour MP is meant to be. And when you saw people on the left saying, yeah, but she doesn't understand policy, well, you know, Harold Boardman, who represented Lee, where I come from, for something like sort of 45 years in Parliament, reputedly never made a speech. He never made it. But, you know, I mean, I'm not against uh, people who don't understand policy becoming, because they're decent, ordinary, honest, trustworthy people, becoming MPs. And I think we might have to go down that route a little bit more across the whole of politics. Yeah, I agree. We, hey, that's quite a good ending. There we yeah. go. <laughs> Peace in our time. Anna Subri and Paul Mason, thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. So, Armando, what was your takeaway from all that? Several things. One is, I think where there was agreement is that the trouble with politics is that it's too full of politicians in that we need a different type of person to engage in politics, which takes us to that, you know, the street level, the ground level thing that both both of them were talking about. And, you know, I came into this with some optimism, thinking are people desperate to establish contact and communication? Slightly, not depressing, but I can see it's going to be, it's 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 not going to be something that happens over the next two or three years. Mm. It's, there's at least a decade in this, in, in trying to, it's not about realignment. I think it's, it, it's about making people see politics differently that it's not to do with parties it's not to do with ideology although all those things are important that that, that the party structure is somehow an old-fashioned structure that is slightly hampering what it is that people really want to do interestingly i think i almost took the opposite from it in terms of the traditional party structures because I suppose just because of the day job, I'm really comfortable with Paul, a Marxist, and Anna, a One Nation Tory, not really getting along on, in terms of the fundamentals. Yes. What I feel like I was hearing from them was actually that Anna's politically homeless. And if there was space for her in the Conservative Party again, a lot of the current tensions in, in our politics would be fixed. And that's where the two of those very different political animals clearly really do agree that they're both quite sad looking at the current political landscape and sort of despairing at the divisions. I think, you know, both of them speaking in quite tough terms about, you know, Anna comparing certain Conservative campaigns to the BNP and Paul talking, you know, about the Conservative Party becoming the willing host of fascism. In a really profound sense, I think they're both a little bit disillusioned. Scared, but, but but like But very much in agreement about the way politics should be and what they want from mm -hmm. a democratic system. Yes. I mean, given this is the end of this short season, it'd be nice to end on an upbeat... <laughs> Sing a song or something. I mean, I feel over the last four weeks, we, we, we've kind of scratched the surface, really. There's a lot more there. We need to do at least a thousand of these to mm. get to the heart of of where politics is now. I mean, I think I do get this sense that over the last five, maybe 10 years, there's been a fundamental shakeup within people's belief system. And it's not quite matching the official structure of politics in Westminster. It, that feels to us 
now a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit alien. Unfortunately, it is where more and more power is residing on a daily basis. And that's the fundamental problem, I think. I suppose, you know, the conclusion is to, to those listening to this, over to you. So that's it for our series. Armando, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you felt welcome. Oh, very welcome. Yes, nobody's punched me. Um, so that's a plus. I've found it both enlightening and entertaining at the same time. Mm. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you. And I hope we'll have you back very soon. Oh, who knows? So goodbye for now. Goodbye. You've been listening to a bonus episode of the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. You can watch video from this podcast on the New Statesman's YouTube channel and on the New Statesman website. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and our executive producer is Chris Stone. The music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. 